Welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we have a very exciting episode of the show from you live here in Prague. Joining us on the other side of the mic in America is presidential hopeful and mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez. We're very excited to talk about, I mean, the political landscape in Florida, why he's running for president, his policy prescriptions, what he thinks separates him from the increasingly crowded field of Republicans, a, a crowded field of Republicans, many of whom are very pro-crypto, including Ron DeSantis as an example. But before we dive into all of that, one question I had as I was walking over the studio that I was so curious about, Mr. Mayor, was just, what's it like campaigning and what surprised you so far since you decided to launch your long shot campaign? Campaigning is hard, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> and particularly when you don't have $150 million and you don't have, you know, sort of that prime time wind at your back or, uh, you know, fancy buses and, and, and private planes. Right. It's 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 harder for those that don't have those kinds of resources. Right. So just to give you an example, um, I was in Iowa last weekend and I was at uh, an event and there were other candidates there and a couple of them are billionaires or close to billionaires. So, you know, they were able to speak at the event at about seven, probably get on their fancy bus, get on their private plane and be home that night. I had to sleep over, uh, get up in the morning and then take 11 hours of traveling from uh, 11 o'clock in the morning when I left my hotel to 10 o'clock at night when I got home. Um, so that's, that's a dynamic that you have to uh, confront and deal with, and uh, hopefully we'll get ourselves to a place where we can have the resources necessary to compete at every level. Well, I hope you're not staying at any Holiday Inn Expresses. I hope I hope it's at least a Hamptons Inn or something. Um, so, We're okay. Walk, walk me through why you decided to run. What sort of did you see among the litany of candidates that you, uh, or I guess to put the question the other way around, what did you see in yourself that you didn't see in the other candidates? I think it's sort of both. Um, you know, I think first question that you have to ask yourself as a voter, and I try to put myself in the voter's shoes, is do you want to see a repeat of the 2020 election? Um, I think that's sort of the threshold question. Do you want to see 2020 all over again with the former president and the current president running against each other? And I think if your answer to that question is no, um, and I think if you look at the polls, a big percentage of people do not want to see that, um, then you've got to choose an alternative. I mean, it's that simple. Uh, what we're not seeing is a lot of people are answering no to the first question, and yet an alternative is not emerging right in the second question. And so I think um, right now what you're seeing in the Republican field and what you're going to see over the next five months until January, uh, which is the Iowa caucus, is you're going to see a shuffling or a reshuffling based on who the Republican Party believes is the best alternative. right? And so uh, I believe that I have uh, the right skill set to be that alternative. I think I have a personality that builds relationships, which I think is important uh, when you look at foreign policy, when you look at how to get legislation passed when you don't have a supermajority. Um, I have a track record of fiscal sanity in my city. Uh, I reduced my budget. I'm the only candidate that has reduced a public sector budget uh, by the same or the equivalent amount that you have to reduce the federal budget to balance the budget right now. Um, I've created, as, as you know, 
uh, an economy and an ecosystem uh, which is second to none in this country, Uh, the highest wage growth, lowest unemployment in the nation, and highest tech job growth in America. That's something that we need to expand and sort of scale uh, nationally. And then I think I have the intangibles to solve some of the pressing issues that are multi-decade, multi-administration issues like immigration. I'm a Hispanic Republican, right? Mm. So I can grow the party among Hispanics, which the party's going to need to win in the 2024 election and beyond, frankly. I have uh, the ability to grow the party by getting more voters in urban areas. I've done that in my city, which was a plus 30 for Hillary Clinton um, in 2016, the year before I got elected. And last year, or the year after I got reelected by close to 80%, was a plus 10 for Republicans. That's a 40-point swing in favor of Republicans in an urban area. And then I think I have the ability to motivate and excite young voters, which voted plus 26 for Joe Biden. I mean, think about that. Uh, Young voters voting plus 26 for someone uh, who is, uh, you know, 80 plus now um, and who is struggling um, to to, uh, deliver a message. Uh, so that that's those are the set of qualifications that I believe I have that distinguish me from the other candidates and that make me a better choice. And I think as the country gets to know me uh, through the debates and through other opportunities, I'm going to start rising in the polls and become an alternative. Definitely. And so those are some of the qualities that maybe serve as a tailwind against your back. But um some headwinds, and I'm sure you've heard of all of these. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but for listeners, uh, fun fact, right? Uh, no president in history has been elected directly after serving as mayor. I think Grover Cleveland was mayor, then governor of New York, and then president. That's right. So that's that's one. Um, the other aspect that you know a lot of people talk about is that the role of Miami um, of city mayor there, despite being very visible, um, very much in the public eye, um, is is largely ceremonial. So in terms of like having the the sort of experience requisite for the job um, might not necessarily be up to par for some voters. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I, first, I, I think the first one is, a, is an absolute fact, right? There's no mayor that has ever ascended directly to the presidency. Uh, but we've had a lot of firsts in the last few presidential cycles, right? We had a, a non-politician become president. Uh, we had the first African-American president uh, before that. Uh, and, and and I would be the first Hispanic president as well. So that would be a first. Uh, as, as to the second issue uh, of, uh, you know, that's, listen, that's a, br- a brand that, uh, that some of my opponents have tried to label as a mayor, as a ceremonial uh, position. That's like saying that the governor is ceremonial because the legislature only meets two months out of the year and has 10 months uh, where there is no legislature. So is he ceremonial the other 10 months or is he only, you know, that, that that's kind of like nonsense. Uh, you know, you're running a, a, you're the CEO of a billion and a half dollar company with 4,500 employees, four labor unions. I choose the, the manager. I can fire the manager. Um, I choose the chair and, and can be the chair of the council. Uh, I present the budget. I make tax policy. So, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's kind of silly. And then of course, as a leader, Anytime you're a leader, you have hard power and what I call soft power. And I think your soft power is arguably more important. And as president, by the way, it's the same thing. You have a certain set of hard powers. Uh, but frankly, the president's main powers are soft powers, right? It's the ability to convene. It's the ability to inspire. It's the ability to motivate and 
convince people uh, of a certain course of action. That's the real power in a democracy, right? Democracies are hard. I mean, you go around the world right now and you're seeing autocracies everywhere. Um, and, 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 you know, they're having their moment. Uh, and I think what you're seeing in a democracy is, you know, we don't, I don't just get to tell people, hey, we're going in that direction and everybody just sort of, sort of, okay, let's start paddling there, right? You have to convince people every day that it's the right place to go and the right reason to go there. And, and, and the next day they might challenge you on that. So, uh, you know, I think it's important to see that the person who you elect as president has to have the qualities, not just the qualifications, but the qualities to lead and the ability to bring people together. And I know that my record uh, demonstrates that. I think uh, something that's um, emblematic of of your soft power would have been the um, I don't know if we call it a campaign or a movement might be a, a bit a bit much, but the the how can I help sort of uh, movement that you that you kicked off that kind of brought you to the national spotlight in many ways, and I think it's fair. I think I think it's fair to say that it brought a lot of interest, a lot of intrigue to Miami from the tech and, and crypto worlds um maybe we can you can walk us through through that and how how you're able to capitalize on that and how you can bring that to a a federal level but i would i would also uh, ask you know there is a difference between you know maybe getting people excited about a city and and maybe national sort of federal policy implementation yeah i'll pack both of them I think the first is you have to look at the three factors that were going on at the same exact time. And this is where leadership is important because leadership is about uh, you know recognizing opportunities and capitalizing on them. So you had three, what I would consider three macro factors happening at the same time. One of them was the salt deduction going away, right? The state and local tax deduction, which meant that states like New York and Illinois and California were anywhere between 13 and 15% more expensive uh, to live in uh, as, a, as a percentage of income tax that you could not anymore deduct from your federal income taxes. So that was one dynamic. The second dynamic, we talked about this off air, was COVID. And we were seen as a place that was relatively open while other places were relatively closed. And the, the remote work phenomenon, which was sort of a byproduct of COVID, allowed people to live in a different place, to move uh, and be more mobile, and rediscover different ecosystems. I think when they came to Miami, they found it to be a place that was much more substantive uh, with much more capital than they actually thought was there. And then I think number three is attitudinal. This is where leadership matters, right? What is your attitude? Are you pushing jobs out of your, your ecosystem, out of your state, for example, or are you bringing jobs into your ecosystem? Uh, and I think that's something that uh, voters need to look at our records, you know, who are pushing uh, votes out of their ecosystem, I'm sorry, jobs out of their ecosystem, who's bringing them in. And so in my case, you had uh, three things happening. You had uh, basically in, in New York, Amazon getting kicked out or said no to after they won the HQ2 prize. Imagine a place applying for the prize, winning the prize, getting 50,000 high paying jobs, and then saying, no, thank you. And then at the same exact time you had in California, and a legislator saying F Elon Musk and him replying message received and he left to Austin and took Tesla to Austin at the exact same time like you were saying which was December 4th of 2020 somebody put out a tweet that said what if we move Silicon Valley to Miami and I responded how can I help why did I do that first I wanted to be different uh, and show the world and the country that we are a proud American city that we want to attract high paying jobs while other cities are pushing them out. 
Second, uh, I wanted, I understand that, and this is where it's important as president, uh, both of them are important really in terms of uh, as a president. I understand that the economy is increasingly becoming more digital. This podcast is a great example. Um, you know, we're, we're, the way we communicate, the way we transmit information is changing drastically and dramatically. And so I think the digital economy as a percentage of GDP is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So if you want to create a successful city, a successful state, a successful country, you have to embrace that reality. And so by saying that I wanted to bring Silicon Valley to Miami, what I was saying was I want to embrace the future economy. And so what has happened since then? We're number one in wage growth. We have the lowest unemployment in America. We, the city of Miami, uh, we've moved approximately $3 trillion worth of assets under managed companies to Miami. We've created thousands of high paying jobs, billions of dollars in wages, uh, and we've increased our venture capital pipeline by 500%. Uh, there is no city in America that has done that. And the challenge now is understanding that as a country, we also have to do that. We need uh, the very best of skilled labor in our country, and we need to confront the threat of China, uh, which is uh, becoming a, a greater and greater economic uh, powerhouse uh, that can threaten our viability in the future. Mr. Mayor, um, I think others might be, there's this sort of double-edged sword to that soft power, I, I'd say. Um, obviously, it attracted a lot of talent, a lot of young people uh, to the city of, Mi of Miami, but obviously, by the same token, I'd be curious to hear what you think about uh, certain conjectures, um, specifically recent Bloomberg reporting that the soft power has also enabled you to sort of grow out your own business and enterprises to a degree that some might say is a conflict of interest. Sure. Look, I've been a, um, a working public official my entire career. Um, that, that Bloomberg article that you cite really is citing a Miami Herald, which is our local paper. Um, and they have had an issue with my outside employment, which I've had, frankly, the entire time, when, even when I was a councilman. Um, all legislators in Florida are working legislators. They don't work uh, with, uh, you know, they're not able to live off of their pay as legislators. So I actually think it's a benefit because it allows me to stay tethered to the private sector. And I think we have issues with public officials who don't understand the private sector, the way it works. And if you look at the background of some of my opponents in this presidential race, you'll see that they're very smart, but they haven't spent much time in the private sector. And that uh, creates a blind spot for them where they really don't understand how the economy works. They pick fights uh, with major employers uh, and that uh, creates a loss of jobs, a loss of investment. And so I think it's important to be connected to the, to the private sector. I've never had an ethical issue in my entire career. I find it kind of funny that I decide to run for president all of a sudden uh, you know it's it, it comes to the forefront that uh, that I supposedly have a conflict of interest with one of the private uh, jobs that I have uh, I can tell you I've never used my public position uh, to benefit any private party um, and unfortunately there was a lawsuit with one of the uh, companies that I worked for and and there were allegations going back and forth which have since been settled um, and unfortunately uh, the you know the Herald which is become an increasingly, uh, you know, socialist, uh, you know, publication. And I say that, uh, you know, I don't say that lightly. The reporter that was assigned uh, to investigate me um, was part of the Occupy Wyoming movement. And there have been reports that she uh, wrote articles for the Independent Socialist Review. So, I mean, I, I think the mainstream media needs to look into that and investigate that, because I think what, one of the things that's important is that there be objectivity 
in press. And I think that's something that people have lost tremendous confidence in. And then what happens is it's used as a weapon. You know, the, you know it's first reported by the local newspaper. You just cited uh, a national uh, publication, Bloomberg. So then it, it gets it gets sort of you know tripped up. Right. And, and, and it, it, it's unfortunate because instead of people knowing my record, uh, they'll, they'll potentially see something like that and have questions which are understandable. Fair enough. I guess, you know, once you once you get uh, up into the uh, big leagues, more questions are asked. Um, looking at that, looking at the the sort of, um, you know, the full cast of characters, for lack of a better phrase, yeah. Um, with all due respect to those characters, how, how do you see it playing out? Right, like we're in an interesting point where, yeah. um, you know, DeSantis had you know at, at some point upwards of twenty five plus against uh, against uh, Trump, who's been pretty steady in the in the fifty percent range among Republicans for the primary. What is it going to take for a, a, a breakout? Is it going to take till we get to the debate stage, or or something else? It, it doesn't seem like yeah. anyone's able to crack that ceiling look i think i think initially the thought was that the governor would have the best opportunity right he had you know 150 million dollars he had uh, all of this national press on the conservative side giving him a ton of earned media he had every all the wind at his back uh, and he's gone in the opposite direction as people have gotten to know him uh, i think they they feel less confident that he has the skill set uh, to lead this country effectively. And so I think now what you're seeing is a reshuffling. Uh, and I think you'll see that over the next five months where Republican voters are going to take a look at the other candidates to see if there is a better alternative uh, to the president than or the former president than the current governor. Uh, I do think that the, that the, the, the um, debates are going to be important because they're one of the opportunities where we're all on an equal footing. It rarely happens where everyone is sort of on the same stage and gets roughly the same amount of time. Um, obviously, that's dependent on, on the moderators, and I'm sure there'll be some adjustments for polling uh, and whether or not the former president actually goes to, to the debate or not. But I think it's a great opportunity for, for me to introduce myself to the country. I think a lot of people who have met me are intrigued by my record, my personality, um, and, and want to know more, frankly. I mean, I was just in Iowa for the uh, GOP Lincoln Day dinner. And, uh, you know, it, people said that my, my speech was one of the best speeches that they heard. And it was unexpected because they didn't know who I was. So I think that's a great opportunity. Um, the way I look at it is you're going to have five episodes on Survivor Island. Uh, which are the five debates before you get to the three additional episodes uh, or four additional episodes, which are the four early primary states um, that will decide who goes on to Super Tuesday, which I think will basically decide the winner of the primary. And that's in early March. So when you're on that stage or even ahead of that, as you're sort of on the trail, what are some of the priorities you're communicating to voters um, that uh, are core to your, your campaign and run? The biggest priorities that are that I can solve big problems, um, you know, and that I have solved big problems. I think the biggest one is inflation and, and high interest rates that are created from bad uh, fiscal and monetary policy. I'm the only candidate in the field that's actually cut a public sector budget by 20 percent. And I would ask voters to to look at every candidate's record on that. Secondly, as a Hispanic Republican, not only can I grow the party, but I feel that I'm in a unique position to solve uh, multi-decade, multi-administration problems like immigration once and for all. 
um, for the benefit of our country, not for the detriment of our country, uh, by using objective metrics to right-size legal immigration, like the need for skilled and unskilled labor, unemployment, our declining birth rate, by once and for all fixing the border and putting all the resources necessary, treating it like a a crisis that it is. And then I think building the the, the economy of the future. Um, we grew last last uh, year in Miami 14%. The year before that, we grew 12%. Um, that's that's more than China's growing, right? And more than China has grown. And so we are, are creating uh, an ecosystem based on innovative policies, innovative policy positions, and based on bedrock conservative principles like reducing taxes. We've reduced taxes to the lowest level in history. Um, no other candidate has done that and can say that as a record. And so I think that uh, that demonstrates uh, my policy priorities. And those are the big issues that are confronting the country. If we confront those issues in a way that allows us to solve those problems, we're going to have a successful eight years as president. And people are going to be extremely happy with the direction of the country. And they're very unhappy with the direction right now. So what from a you know, monetary and fiscal policy perspective, would you have done differently? What is the Fed doing that you disagree with? And in terms of if, if under your presidency, you're cutting taxes, um, how is that being balanced out from a yeah. deficit perspective? Well, I think before you can cut taxes, you have to balance the budget. The, the budget right now is 20% out of balance. That's a massive amount. Um, and we have to see what kind of political will there is to balance that over what period of time. I'd love to see it balanced over a very short period of time, maybe over the course of, uh, of one uh, political cycle or less. But uh, that's the first thing you have to do. That helps uh, correct at some level um, uh, monetary policy because it's true. Are you, are, you, are you of the opinion that, you know, we can sort of grow our, our way out of the out of the deficit? I think it's a no. I think you have to do both. I do think that growth is a function of it or a part of it, uh, but I think you have to do both. You can't just grow your way out of it. I do think you need to cut costs, and no one, no one is, no one has actually um, articulated a, a plan to do that. Um, but I'm the only one that's actually done it, and I've done it uh, by making some very tough decisions that were, um, you know, not popular with my employees at the time, um, but created financial health. So I think I think that's part of it. I do think growth is a function of it, and I think as you as you get inflation under control, as you get interest rates under control, you're going to see growth, which will help. But you can, it cannot just be growth driven; it has to be uh, cost cutting as well. And so that, I think that's part of it. Obviously, uh, I do support uh, alternative assets uh, like crypto, and I think that they're very good for a country like the U.S. because they create a good hedge and a good um, sort of check and balance on a monetary system that's gotten completely out of control and become hyper-political, right? And so I think that's uh, supporting uh, cryptocurrency, supporting Bitcoin is, is something that I would do as president. I would potentially even take my salary in Bitcoin, uh, which I think would be fun. It's, I'm doing that right now uh, as mayor. Uh, I don't see why I wouldn't do it as president. Uh, and so I, I, I think it's important for a president to encourage generational uh, innovation, and I think for our country to succeed, we have to do that. China is doing that. China is uh, graduating more PhDs in computer science than we are. Um, and obviously, they have a much greater population, but that's still happening. Um, they're spending a tremendous amount on quantum computing, which is worrisome because that can break our encryption and, and have them read our emails and, and break our codes. Uh, they're, they're, they, are, they have far, far more advanced in 5G than we are right now, um, which means that their entire population is going to be more connected on them than we will be and, and more able to, to learn. 
uh, we're doing poorly on education and we have to do much better on education as well. So there's a lot of challenges that we have to confront. Um, and I think I've demonstrated the dynamism uh, to confront them in ways that other candidates haven't. Why do you think that crypto has become somewhat of a bipartisan issue? Uh, Richie Torres, congressman from Bronx, the Bronx, recently said that it's more of a generational issue, but clearly I feel like the loudest voices in support of crypto fall on the Republican side with folks like Republican um, uh, Whip uh, Emmer, uh, as well as um, you know your your competitor there, Ron DeSantis. What 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 makes crypto, uh, or rather, why are Republicans maybe leaning into it a bit more, and how will it sort of um, shape your your presidency potentially? You know, I think Republicans are leaning into it more because they trust consumers. Number one, they, there's not sort of this. Democrats have a tendency to be protectionists. We want to protect. Uh, people against themselves and their own decision making. So I think that's part of it. I think the second part of it is it's pro freedom, right? You, you, you know, you want people to have the ability to invest uh, in a variety of assets and it's pro innovation. And I think uh, Democrats oftentimes are pro regulation uh, and, and, and Republicans are more pro freedom. What Democrats are now starting to see, the ones who are, who are digging into this, if they're intelligent, is that Bidenomics, if you will, right, in my opinion, is where the poor get poor. And the poor get poor because of inflation, which diminishes purchasing power, and rising interest rates, which makes the cost of borrowing go up, right? So you're getting squeezed on both ends. You have less purchasing power and you have more borrowing costs. You're literally getting pushed on both ends. Uh, what you can what, what you can do with crypto is you can do fractionalized, for example, in, in blockchain, you can do fractionalized investing in debt and equity. What does that mean? Uh, if you have a, a billion dollar building in Miami, for example, right now, the only people that can help, that can benefit from the creation of that building are the people that put in the hundreds of millions of dollars of equity, right, uh, into that building and the people that are putting in uh, and who own the bank, essentially, and, and who are shareholders and, 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 and invest in the debt of that building. So those are the only two parties. By fractionalizing investments, you can actually invest directly into the debt or equity of a building at a $100 rate, $10 rate, $1,000 rate, whatever, uh, and tokenize it. And you can have much greater yields with a, a relatively lower risk. Uh, and, and that means that the poor are getting richer as opposed to the poor are getting poorer. But, you know, there, you know, people have to get used to the fact that if you're going to if you want a higher yield, you're going to take a higher risk, which means there's a higher chance that you could lose. And I think Democrats are uncomfortable with the fact oftentimes uh, that you could lose. The second thing I would tell you is I would challenge a little bit your statement that um, the governor's pro crypto. All I've heard the governor say is that he's anti central bank uh, digital currencies. I have not heard him. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's already come in on crypto. I hope he has. Um, has he? I don't know if you. I think yesterday. I think yesterday he said something about Bitcoin okay, good. being good. Uh, good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that, that's great. Uh, I think you have to go beyond just saying. The point I was going to try to make is you got to go beyond just saying that central bank digital currencies are bad. Everybody agrees on that. That's a very easy position. Nobody um, thinks that that's good because obviously nobody wants the federal government to know where and and how much money you have at any given moment, right? And that's uh, there's major privacy concerns with. Of central bank digital currencies. But I, I think it's important for him to go beyond that acknowledge it. So that's good if he did. Well, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for joining the program. Appreciate your time and good luck on the trail. Thanks, Frank. I appreciate it. Anytime. And The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.